In 2001, the United States had $5.8 trillion in debt. At the time of this recording, 20 years later, the debt has grown to $28 trillion, and it's getting bigger. In this episode of Insight to Action, Adam Millsap, the Senior Fellow for Economic Opportunity Issues at Stand Together and the Charles Koch Institute, explains why the debt is growing and the possible consequences of allowing it to continue to grow. Spoiler alert, it isn't good. Here we go. One thing that I am extremely impressed about is your writing background. Uh, I'm very uh, impressed by that. Not that that goes far, but I just I see your name around and I'm like, this guy clearly knows what he's talking about. So if you don't mind, just tell us a little bit about where where you're at right now, where you, you came from, a little bit of your background and why this is such a, an important subject for you. Right now, I'm currently the senior fellow for economic opportunity at both Stand Together uh, the umbrella organization of the Standing Together community, and also the Charles Koch Institute. In that role, I help advise on our grant making for um, economic opportunity issues, both with um, 501c3s and also with some of our higher ed partners assisting the Charles Koch Foundation on some of their uh, grant making. Um, and uh, I also do some writing, as you as you mentioned. I do some kind of like thought leadership and try to get you know, the principles and the positions and the views of the Stand Together community out there in the public. Um, primarily, I write through Forbes now, so I have a uh, recurring contributor uh, role with Forbes, and I typically write there twice a month, um, sometimes more frequently, depending on time and how topics come up. Um, prior to coming to the Stand Together community, I was at the um, L. Charles Hilton Jr. Center, which was a university center at the Florida State University in the economics department. Um, and I was also doing some writing and research and teaching at Florida State University. And then prior to that, I was at the Mercatus Center. I was a research fellow um, working on state and local policy issues. So also doing writing and then more long-form research. So my background is in economics. I have a PhD in economics, so I tend to approach things from an economics angle. And um, yeah, so that's what I'm currently up to. So when it comes to debt, let's let's clarify what we're talking about right out of the gate. We're not talking so much about states or counties. There are there is debt there that's concerning. But when we talk about debt, mainly we're talking about this. What is it now? Twenty eight trillion dollar behemoth that's that's at the federal level. Yeah. So, you know, the debt's around twenty one trillion dollars now, which, again, is like over 100 percent of GDP. And just why that matters is GDP just represents kind of our ability to pay back the debt. So it's the annual income that all Americans produce, you know, in a, in a, on an annual basis. And so comparing this to like, like a person, if you earn $50,000 a year and you had $10,000 in debt, that would be easier to pay back than if you earned $50,000 a year and you had $100,000 in debt to pay back. It would obviously take you longer. You have to work two full years just to pay back your debt, right? And so America is getting to the point where it would take an entire year's worth of everything that we produce in order to pay down the entire national debt. And again, it's only going up from there. A lot of projections have it going up to roughly 200% of GDP by, by the middle of the century. I guess my first question then is, is why? Why is it going up so much? What are we, what are we spending so much money on <laughs> that, that we're going into debt so much? And now it's my understanding that there's, there's things we can stop spending on, and then there's things that we are automatically going to pay, and that amount's going to go up each, each year. Is that correct? 
Yeah, so a lot of the spending is mandated spending on things like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, um, SNAP benefits, food stamps. There's a lot of programs that such that spending is essentially on autopilot. Um, and then there's discretionary programs that Congress can kind of tweak every year when they do their budget. Um, but about 60 to 65 percent of the debt or 60 to 60, I'm sorry, 60 to 65 percent of the spending every year is on these mandatory programs, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, things that you can't really touch without serious legislation, serious reforms outside of the normal budget process. So only about a third of the debt can Congress really tweak any year through the budget process or a third of the spending can Congress really tweak every year through the budget process. I'm sitting here thinking, I, I hear this, it's mandatory, we can't touch that. And then I thought, well, how did it become mandatory? I believe you passed a law to make it mandatory. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it's not that they can't touch it, they just can't touch it through the normal budget process. They have to enact some other form of legislation in order to address it. Whereas during the normal budget process, they can just say, hey, the Department of Defense, last year you got $800 billion, this year you only get 700 Right. They don't need a law to, to do that. Right. Any idea why they did that? Um, I'm not exactly sure why they made it mandatory rather than be able to touch it. I think, I mean, I think ultimately the goal was just this is an entitlement, right? I mean, things like Social Security is something that, you know, you're paying into through your payroll taxes. So you're entitled to getting at the end. And that's kind of how it's funded. So it, because it has a direct funding source through either the Medicare, Medicaid taxes that come out of your paycheck or the Social Security taxes, that money is then directed to the spending. And so the revenue and the spending are just really closely tied together. So there's no reason for them to go into it versus like the general revenue fund with income taxes come into the government. And then Congress can kind of decide how that general income tax revenue is allocated. What do you what do you say to folks who I, I believe it's Paul Krugman and he's usually introduced as Nobel Prize winning economist Paul Krugman. He says that this is just money we owe ourselves. So it's no big deal. Yeah, that was definitely the common argument for a long time, I think. And there's some validity to that. If you think of the United States as being this infinitely lived entity, right? Countries go on, walk into the future. Um, forget about the individuals that are part of the country, but just think of the United States as going off into the future, kind of like a corporation, right? CEOs come and go, but the corporation persists. If you think of the U.S. like that, then in some sense, we do. We used to largely owe it to ourselves. Some people would be the people who held the treasury bonds, and then some people would be the people who didn't hold them and would be kind of the people paying the ones who held it. But now about a third of the debt is held by foreign governments. Um, that number used to be a lot smaller. But now, like I said, roughly 32, 33 percent of the of the foreign debt of the debt is held by foreign entities. So Japan and China being the two largest holders currently. So it's no longer the sense that like you might hold a bond and I just owe you money or my kids owe your kids money, you know. 30 years down the future, grandkids owe each other money 30 years down the future. Now your grandkids might actually owe people in China or Japan or Great Britain. That's much more likely than it was 50, 60 years ago. Why should that concern me more than money I owe myself? I mean, from the, like I said, it depends on what your, what your unit of analysis is, right? If you care about the United States, then money we owe to ourselves is just transfers among U.S. citizens. So the United States is not harmed in general, right? Who cares? Why does it, The U.S. government doesn't care if I owe you money. Either way, it's kind of staying inside the country, that sort of thing. When it starts going outside of the country, it's just real resources that we ultimately have to pay back to people that are not Americans, right? This doesn't mean necessarily it's bad. I don't think that we, the optimal level of debt to foreign governments is, is zero, per se. Um, there might be good reasons for issuing bonds and China buying up the bonds and then using that money to invest in the U.S. Like I said, I'm not like a nationalist or anything like that. But it does kind of complicate the argument that we just owe it to ourselves, though. Mm -hmm. Is there any validity to the concern that... That China could just 
call in all our debts and suddenly we owe trillions and trillions of dollars to China. And if we can't pay, then we have to, I don't know, foreclose something. I don't, <laughs> I've heard that also. China's going to call in our debts and then what? I mean, they can't really call it in, right? I mean, they may turn, there's terms of agreement whenever you buy a bond, you know, and you have to go through the normal, you know, whenever the bond is up, right? Whether it's a five-year bond, a 10-year bond or whatever. So, but they can obviously stop buying new debt, right? They might decide that, hey, next time we have an issuance, you know, the treasury issues some bonds in order to pay for government spending, China may decide to sit that out, right? We're not going to be a buyer of this new issue of, of bonds or something like that, or Japan might decide to sit it out. Um, so it could be harder to attract buyers. We might have to offer a higher interest rate then in order to attract buyers back into the market. So yeah, it's not so much that they could call it in that you could just stop maybe refusing to buy, which would create its own set of problems. No doubt. So let me let me get to our, our vision. When we start talking about these issues, I love to take it back to our vision. And of course, we're talking about the fact that we break barriers that stand in the way of people realizing their potential. When we break those barriers that moves our society towards one of mutual benefit, where people succeed by helping others improve their lives. Help me understand, help everyone listening understand how this debt is is actually erecting barriers rather than tearing them down. Yeah, sure. Um, I think you kind of brought up one point already, which I kind of want to address, this idea of like the debt and equal rights. So one thing you already brought up is this idea that we owe it to ourselves, right? But there's this, there's this intergenerational phenomenon happening when it comes to the debt. So right now, we're currently borrowing against future productivity. We're, we're, we're borrowing money against the future by issuing these bonds that we expect to pay back somewhere down the line. So that's going to require either higher taxes down the road or you're a lot more productivity. So we just grow so fast, you know, kind of like a person, their income grows so fast that they can pay down the debt. We could do the same thing. GDP could skyrocket. We start growing 5% a year. Now the debt's not as much of a problem anymore because we can just pay it back with all this extra money that we're making. But it's not clear that we're actually investing the debt and things that are actually going to make us more productive down the road. So higher taxes seem like more of a more likely possibility. So in some sense, we're, we're creating fiscal policy for future generations. We're saying, listen, you guys are going to have the same kind of flexibility we're having today. Um, whether whether to borrow or to raise taxes, right? You're going to be forced to raise taxes at some point. Some generation down the road is going to have to raise taxes down at some point, which is going to then prevent them from having as much growth in the private sector, right? Whenever you get higher taxes, you get less incentive to invest, less incentive to create, less incentive to work. And so they're going to have to deal with all those distortions created by higher taxes because we're borrowing money and not really creating opportunities to increase GDP down the road. So I think I think we think of equal rights as an intergenerational play. It's almost as if it's, it's taxation without representation because those people haven't even been born yet. I mean, yeah, I think I think in a, in, yeah, in, in, in a sense, you can think of it that way, right? We're kind of constraining their fiscal options through our decisions today. And again, we don't know exactly what generation that is. Is it is it twenty years down the road? Is it fifty years down the road? Is it one hundred fifty years down the road? But at some point, it's going to need to be reckoned with. And to your point, those people who are going to have to do the reckoning aren't having much say today. Yeah. And we are we are busy erecting roadblocks to their prosperity with our fiscal decisions today. Clearly, yeah. not a situation where there's mutual benefit. And that's another point, mutual benefit, right? So, again, and then you think about today. So forget about the intergenerational equity problem. Um, when you think about today, higher debt um, crowds out private sector investment. Um, it can be a drag on the private sector economy. People are investing in government bonds versus investing in other areas of the economy. So you get that problem as well. So there's the private sector opportunities are limited by the crowd out effect of government debt and, and annual government deficits. And really in the private sector is where the mutual benefit 
occurs, right? That's where all the activity that creates mutual benefit is. Government in some form is, is, is coercion, right? We might need some level of government, but government in, in any form is, is coercion. So the, the mutual benefit, the voluntary exchange, that all happens in the private sector, but too much debt crowds that out and dampens activity in the private sector. Help me understand how it contributes to a more closed society or a more closed economy. One of the things we value is openness. So I'm curious, how does how does the debt contribute to a more closed society? I think it's more indirect, and I think we have a good analogy for this. So when you think about if we if, say say the debt, the, 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 one of the big problems of running up running up big deficits and, and debt over time is that we don't know when the reckoning is going to occur. So you can get into this debt crisis, a debt spiral, where the market, for whatever reason, maybe there's some kind of financial crisis. Um, maybe people start getting a little leery of the government's ability to pay back what they owe without running up inflation or something like that. So they start demanding higher interest rates. Those higher interest rates then require higher interest payments on behalf of the federal government. So now we have to make higher interest payments. Well, where is that money going to come from? We either need to raise taxes or we need to borrow more in order to roll over the debt. Well, if they see us trying to borrow more in order to roll over debt, that just spooks them even more. So then they demand further higher interest payments, right? So we get into like this debt spiral, this crisis that might probably if the U.S. It's happened to the U.S. It will lead to like a global recession or a global depression, given the prominence of the U.S. economy. And so when you think about openness, governments tend to clamp down on civil liberties a lot during times of economic turmoil. So you can look back to think about Nazi Germany, right? After World War One, Germany owed all these reparations for for World War One, and they had to pay to all these foreign governments, their economy was in turmoil, runaway inflation, hyperinflation. Well, that kind of set the stage for Hitler to really come in and say, hey, listen, I can solve your problems, right? Uh, and, and what happened? We had the rise of Nazism, obviously the clampdown on civil rights, Holocaust, all these bad things happened. That was a lot of what was caused by this economic turmoil. So I'm not saying the U.S. is going to get there anytime soon, but there's always this there's this black swan event of a debt crisis that if it occurs, it'll lead to economic turmoil, global recession, global depression. And when that happens, governments tend to clamp down on civil liberties as well. So that lack of flexibility, economic strength, having a solid foundation, a solid fiscal foundation, financial situation can lead to clampdowns on civil liberties and civil liberties violations um, when, when that occurs. So it's something we need to be cognizant of. Clearly, when you describe that, I mean, I think it's obvious then how the this debt, if it's allowed to continue, if it, if it eventually gets to a spot where it's clearly unsolvable, it's causing economic crisis, it would have a profound impact on a person's ability to self-actualize. Absolutely. Um, there's not a lot of self-actualization that occurs during depressions. Right. Right. <laughs> Right. So, so if, if the private sector is decimated, if, if unemployment is 25 percent, you know, um, industries are shutting down left and right, businesses are closing, you know, think of the Great Depression just maybe even magnified, right? If we got into something like a debt crisis, there's no room for self-actualization. So having a sound fiscal footing, being on sound fiscal footing is crucial to things like self-actualization, mutual benefit, a robust private sector. So, like I said, that's that kind of black swan event, that idea of a debt crisis. It's lurking out there somewhere, and we don't know exactly when it's going to happen, but it's a real possibility. And because the downside of it is so profound, we should really be taking steps today to limit the chance that it occurs. Well, what do you say to someone who, who is still convinced that it's, it's not that big a deal? Uh, you know, this, this is it's not that big a deal. This is not something we need to worry about. 
Yeah, that, and that's a hard, that's the million dollar question. Um, I mean, we were bringing up the national debt has been a topic within our community for just a tea party at least, right? I mean, 10 years ago, a decade ago, we started bringing it up. But even earlier than that, I imagine. Back in the um, good old days when it was only $8 trillion. Yeah, yeah, right. And so, it, I mean, it is one of those things, like you said, it's so far off. It's so, the idea of like 21 trillion in debt is such a large number. You know, it's just hard to grasp what that even means. You know, um, it's a hard problem to to make salient. And I don't have a great answer for how to uh, how to make that issue salient. I mean, that's one of the things we're trying to work on through our grant making and the other activities that we do within the broader stand together community. And it's something we still need to keep working on because, like I said, I don't think we have a great answer yet. But we just need to be aware that that problem exists. And, and I think people within our community who, you know, tend to be think about these things, understand numbers and can really, you know, realize the importance of this issue. It's something good for us to internalize. And when these conversations come up, you know, do our best to explain what the problem is, even though to your point, it's sometimes hard to hard to conceptualize and make real. You know, one of the things that I think has been most effective in, in communicating this is is what we talked about earlier is the fact that we're not paying this back. Every Every trillion that's added to the deficit, that's not a trillion I'm going to contribute to. That's a contri- that, that that's a trillion. Probably my grandkids and great grandkids will have to contribute to. And a lot of people might not care about about the debt right now, but most people, believe it or not, care about their family and they care about their family's future and what kind of world they're going to live in. And so, I, I I've had some success by saying, look, you realize that you are putting a burden on your children, grandchildren, and great grandchildren with this. This isn't something for yeah. you to pay back. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's a great point. I mean, to the extent that people care about future generations, their own or just Americans in general, this is a real problem that they should do something, hopefully in their lifetime to address, right? We can't just keep running up these deficits every year and making the debt larger and larger. um, If we in fact care about what the kind of life, the kind of economy that our children, grandchildren, great, great grandchildren are going to inherit. Um, Because like I said, if we get into one of these debt crises, and that's really the biggest downside is you're getting into this debt crisis. When that happens, it's going to be a very turbulent, unpleasant world. And even though you might not be around to see it, future generations are going to judge us. They're going to look back and say, what was everyone doing? How did they drop the ball so badly that now we're sitting here and our economy is in shambles when all those people back in the 2020s were just living the good life, not thinking about it. And here we are in the 2090s with no economic opportunity, no ability to self-actualize. All because we wanted a little bit of extra money, you know, 70, 80 years previously. So when we look at the debt and we take into consideration our vision, the four mutually reinforcing principles, what is our what is our vision of the debt? What do we think good looks like from here? If we're going to solve this, what are things that that we need to be thinking about doing? Absolutely cutting spending. Revenue is kind of government revenue as far as taxes go has kind of been constant for the last 70 years around like fluctuates between like 16.5% and 17.5% of GDP. But spending keeps increasing up over 20% of GDP for government spending every year. So it's really a spending issue. So we have to figure out what programs can we cut, can we reform, with entitlements being a big part of this. We're going to need to do something about Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Coming up into the and for the next decade or so, a lot of the trust funds for all of those entitlement programs are going to start expiring, running out of funds, which is going to create a good inflection point. 
for us to have these conversations. But it's ultimately going to come down to reforming spending. We just have to accept the fact that we can't have everything today. That is going to require a lot of courage, Adam. And yeah. I mean, that is that is an unbelievable. That's something politicians are really uh, are really known for. Yeah, there's right? not an abundance of that when it comes to making hard decisions. It uh, it is known as the third rail, Social Security. Yeah. It's, it's for a reason. You touch that, and your career's over. George Bush saw this. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, it's going to take some tough decisions. It's going to take some real courage. Um, you know, we almost had something. The Simpson Bowles thing certainly wasn't perfect. But at least it was trying to get at the problem. It was about 60% spending cuts and, and 40% revenue increases. Not the, that's not the balance that I would, I would prefer. But at least it was some serious, some serious reforms. There was a serious conversation going on. So we, I, think, I think we need more of those kind of serious conversations. And I don't think anyone's going to like what the ultimate compromise is. It's not going to be perfect. But we need to do something because the status quo, the current trajectory is just not good enough. It's a difficult conversation to have with people, especially people who are invested and have made part of that spending a part of their lifestyle. And I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. I I live in Missouri. I am surrounded by farmers. A lot of these farmers receive farm subsidies. And I, I try to bring up the fact that, you know, uh, Indonesia... They, they dealt with this problem, too, and they got rid of all farm subsidies. Well, if we got rid of all farm subsidies, it would destroy us. It, it is a difficult conversation to have. People start getting emotional about it. And one thing that I've found effective is just asking questions like, do you think that the current level of spending is sustainable long term, or is this eventually going to become a problem we can't deal with? And most people will say, we can't keep doing this. And so... <laughs> Then I'll say, then we really have a choice, not about whether we cut spending, but when. We can either control the cuts and make sure they're done as painlessly as possible. Not completely painless. It's going to hurt some folks. But we can control how we do this so it's as painless as possible. Or we can ignore it until there is no choice. There's just no spending. But one way or the other, a change is going to have to be made. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Like to your point, we can either control it now. And like I said, every year we delay, it gets harder. So we can either start controlling it now, make small cuts that'll get us back on a trajectory that's sustainable, relatively small cuts anyway, or we can wait until the bond markets thrust change upon us such that we have to have like drastic spending cuts all at once, coupled with large tax increases, just to be able to make good on the payments that we already owe. When I think about this, I think also it's important that we we don't talk enough about the other key institutions in society, because a lot of this spending comes from the mindset that if government doesn't do it, it won't get done. That if we don't have Social Security, the old will die broken alone. If we don't have Medicare, they won't have health care. If we don't have Medicaid, people will die in the streets. And there needs to be... a just a realization or, or a conversation, a big a big push on this idea that, no, government doesn't have to do all this, that people generally love one another and we, we take care of one another and we don't like people dying in the streets. And it, it is that government spending that keeps, you know, like I've said before, when government comes into a space, they come in with very wide elbows and they nudge everything else out of the way yeah. until that ability is atrophied. So if government suddenly disappears communities really going to want to try, but they won't have the muscle that they need. But if we can slowly build that muscle up, then they could take over. 
I think that's a great point, and I agree with you 100%. I mean, I think the uh, civil society has been, to your point, like you said, it's a muscle that hasn't been exercised as much as it should. Um, and so right now, government has, like you know, like you said, pushed its way in and filled this void of social insurance and the social safety net. This is not to say there's not some room for the government to do something when it comes to the social safety net, but we certainly don't need them, in my opinion, and I think yours, to do as much as they are currently doing. There is room for civil society, for community organizations and the nonprofit sector to fill a lot of these gaps. And then even when it comes to government, it's not clear that the federal government needs to be doing all that it's doing, right? You can have government solutions that are local. There's local governments, there's state governments, there's county governments. So let's allow for a lot more experimentation and a lot more variation in programs across the 50 states. Let's really get back to like true federalism where the states can implement their own programs. We can kind of see what works and what doesn't and have a lot more flexibility for tweaking them such that we're not relying so much on the federal government and these kind of top-down solutions. Adam Millsap is the Senior Fellow for Economic Opportunity Issues at Stand Together and the Charles Koch Institute. Big thanks again to him for taking the time to talk with us. For Americans for Prosperity, I'm Dwayne Lesser, and this has been Insight to Action. <laughs>